Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Shirley A. James Hanshaw to discuss her book, Remembering and Surviving, African-American Fiction of the Vietnam War. Thanks for tuning in. In the words of Yusuf Komanyaka, Shirley A. James Hanshaw's Remembering and Surviving is a powerful call seeking a response. This superb analytical voice examines literature by four black writers, John A. Williams, Wesley Brown, A.R. Flowers, and George Davis, who are masterful storytellers shaped by the cauldron of war. Through her attention to these figures, Hanshaw reveals an American voice that has been kept in obscurity. Here, the historical background illuminates a postmodern imagination. As Jay Watson puts it, this is an invaluable work that will kindle important scholarship about the Black War experience and its literary representation for years to come. A vital contribution to African American literary criticism and literary history. I'm excited to be joined today by the author of Remembering and Surviving, Shirley A. James Hanshaw, who is Professor Emerita in the English Department at Mississippi State University, where she was instrumental in establishing the first African American Studies program. She's the recipient of a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, a Danforth Associateship for Outstanding Teaching in the Sciences and Humanities, and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship. Dr. Hanshaw, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and discuss your book. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to get into it. And one of the things that I think right out of the bat is super exciting about the book is the degree to which you're bringing light to a heretofore ignored canon of writing. I'd like to talk a little bit about how you came to be interested in fiction of the Vietnam War. Okay, well, when I was uh, studying toward the uh, PhD in English, I, uh, well, there was a course offered um, by a young professor, uh, Literature of the Vietnam War. And uh, it was the only uh, you know, course in modern American literature that focused on the Vietnam War. I have to admit that I, I thought the, the Vietnam War was a, uh, that era was the chapter in the book of my life that I had closed, mainly because I, I lost a number of high school and college classmates in that war. And I actually had two brothers of my five brothers to go to war. Um, thank God they returned, uh, you know, uh, without injury. So, it presented a challenge to me, I guess, taking that course. And uh, in that course were 15 texts, but only one was uh, offered by an African-American, and that was Dinkidao, which in uh, Vietnamese means crazy in the head, uh, by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Yusef Komunyaka. So I thought, wow, there must be more literature out there somewhere uh, by African-Americans. And uh, so it sort of became a mission for me to find out what other types of literature and what other, uh, in other genres besides poetry uh, that existed. And so that's what set me on my mission. It's really incredible that a class like that could be structured to include 15 texts, only one of them by an African-American, when, as you point out in the book, 
African-Americans were disproportionately drafted and served, you know, in the Vietnam War, that the experience was spread across the whole community of people. And then for at the at the university level for that to be just completely uh, ignored is really shocking. Well, and I might say that um, we had to write a 15-page paper for that course. Well, <laughs> mine ended up being uh, over 30 pages with uh, six pages of bibliography. So the professor of the course uh, said in his comment at the end, well, I can see that your paper is a subtle critique of my course. So I actually ended up asking him to direct my dissertation uh, because I appreciated his scholarship and I was glad that he appreciated mine. But one of the reasons, uh, you know, he, he's not totally to blame because uh, there was a, well, still is, a paucity of bibliographies that include short stories, novels, nonfiction, poetry by African-Americans. And so that's what I'm hoping to do with my book, uh, actually in the appendix, well, the appendix C is there too. And one uh, lists uh, African-American fiction, uh, nonfiction, and poetry by African-Americans. The other one lists films and musical compositions by African-Americans. And these musical compositions, I might add, are across musical genres, uh, gospel, blues, rock, and there are several classical compositions by African-Americans. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you know, the reading public will see just how extensive this canon of war literature is by African-Americans. I'm glad that you brought up the appendices because I do think that, as I said at the outset, one of the book's major contributions is to do precisely what you just said, which is to look at this large canon of work and say, here it is. It stretches out in all of these various genres. It's in art. It's in music. It's in fiction and nonfiction. You settled on fiction to analyze in remembering and surviving. Could you talk a little bit about that decision? Why fictional works? Uh, because of the long history uh, among African Americans of storytelling, and the the stories uh, that are told uh, among these various novels, harken back to African and African American cultural memory. In fact, uh, several of these novels revive African American and African heroes. Uh, who are not discussed in mainstream literature. So I wanted to um, discuss those heroes to uh, show how they differ from you know, mainstream heroes like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and John Wayne. <laughs> you won't find those heroes in these Black novels, but you will find High John DeConca and uh, Anansi and a number of um, other African and African-American heroes uh, that are, you know, metaphorically uh, and mythologically presented in these novels. So there's a cultural history of storytelling that you're drawing on to think about the fiction. I'm interested in taking this, uh, what you were just saying about, you know, thinking about African-American and African heroism uh, in contrast to white European 
discussions of heroism. One of the things that you deal with a little bit in the book is the idea of redemption and hero- heroism through violence. Could you say a little bit about how the works that you're dealing with work differently than that, what their characterization of heroism is like? Uh, yes. I discuss in the book the compassionate hero. Uh, you know, there's a discussion uh, throughout, you know, historical treatises on the Vietnam War about how quite often uh, there were black soldiers who, who intervened when white soldiers would be committing atrocities or that. Now, that's not to say that uh, African-American soldiers were never, uh, you know, involved in any um, violence that, you know, was ancillary to the war. But as these novels point out, and as many of the oral narratives, you know, Bloods uh, was an oral narrative that was uh, published uh, after the war, uh, and Brothers uh, is another one. And uh, more often than not, you will find um, both uh, non-fictional as well as fictional accounts of African-American soldiers who were um, compassionate toward the, the, the Vietnamese. And it, even though sometimes African-American soldiers were uh, being mistreated by their own you know, white foxhole buddy, buddies, per se, that's... Um, one of the um, the ways in which this corpus of literature by Black writers deals from war writing in general uh, in the mainstream. Yeah, as it must, because it comes from a different perspective. I was thinking as you were talking about the the Muhammad Ali quote that you include in your book, the idea that you know why should why should I go fight the Vietnamese? They they aren't the ones oppressing me and and harassing me and mistreating me. Although Ali uses much more colorful language than that. Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, in one of these novels, not one that I cover in depth, but one that I, I mentioned in the summary sec, uh, section of the book, in, in this particular novel uh, titled Cohesion, the um, protagonist uh, falls in love with a Viet Cong woman, and they band together, and uh, they, they both uh, desert their respective armies. <laughs> and uh, there are other instances in which uh, there are the, the Vietnamese ca- uh, capture, uh, African-American, this one was titled MIA, and the soldiers are listed mis- missing in action, but they're actually captured and they find that the captor, uh, a Vietnamese general, uh, is very uh, ge- uh, congenial toward them, and engages them in, you know, philosophical conversations, uh, those kinds of things. And there were times when leaflets were dropped in the uh, jungle saying they call me gook over here, they call you nigger at home, why are you fighting this war? So there was a a huge psychological war that uh, African-American soldiers were fighting in, in addition to the visceral war. One of the things that I was hoping we could touch on is the degree to which so much of the literature that you're looking at was produced even long after the war, into the 70s and into the 80s, even you know up to today, because you see that same thing happening, that psychological, it's no longer, I guess, psychological warfare when folks return home, but then 
Um, I know some of the writers deal with coming back from the war and not having, you know, won the gains of uh, national pride and heroism, but they find themselves still facing structural racism and oppression and all of the things that some have argued they could have overthrown by going to war, uh, by serving the country. Well, thank you for broaching that, the issue of coming back home from the war. Many of these novels, most of them, as a matter of fact, begin at the point at which Black soldiers return to America. And then there are flashbacks and flashes forward, and which is a kind of Afrocentric um, structure in many of the novels to show how the past is the present, is the future. You see what I'm saying? And several uh, of the novels, uh, the point is that racism existed before the soldiers went to war. It existed while they were there. And, 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 and there are many soldiers, including one of my brothers, who said that he was spat upon when he came back. Because uh, remember, again, that the war overlapped both the civil rights movement and the black power movement, and of course the anti-war movement and the women's movement. I mean, there were all these wars that were going on simultaneously. And so there were some who viewed African-Americans, especially those who volunteered to go to the war uh, as, uh, you know, being somewhat traitorous to the, to the black power movement. But then even in Vietnam, black soldiers were fighting against that same kind of racism. Uh, for one example is in 1968 when Dr. King was killed. Uh, there were white soldiers who um, painted swastikas uh, on the side of their, some of their equipment and uh, flew the rebel flag, uh, the Confederate flag and, and you know, had comments like Martin Luther the Coon is dead. I mean, and so these are people who were fighting alongside uh, supposed to be black soldiers, but were still bringing those very racist kinds of ideas with them and um, just exacerbated the kind of wars that African-Americans were, were fighting. I can't get over the idea that in that in the context of all of that, an army made up of, of volunteers and those who had been drafted into service, who went against their will or at, you know, at penalty of imprisonment if they decided not to go, that one of the things that the government actively did was try to say to potential African-American enlistees, serve your country and you'll show that you're, you know, that you... Patriotic. <laughs> Yeah, that you're patriotic and that you that you don't deserve to be treated differently or that you've done something that will make you so heroic that you'll come back and you won't, you know, you won't face separate treatment and all of that kind of thing. Um, but as you, as you just said and pointed out in the book, it just doesn't play out that way. Right. In fact, uh, this was supposed to have been the first, well, you can't see my hand, quote, end quote, uh, integrated war. But, uh, of course, that, that wasn't uh, the case. There was still, you know, disparate treatment. Uh, an inordinate number of African Americans found themselves uh, in the um, stockades. Sometimes for something as simple as wearing the colors red, black, and green, you know, the colors in the Black Liberation flag, or even 
for doing the dap. In fact, one of these uh, novels has both some serious and some humorous incidents uh, involving uh, the dap. And that was something called the, the Nam Wide Dap. So young black men who in everyday society would uh, do the dap with the various uh, kinds of hand gestures. Uh, it's a sign of brotherhood. Well, when this was transferred to, to Vietnam, sometimes the, um, the brothers would go down the, the lunch line or the dinner line, and they would be doing the dap. <laughs> it would sometimes hold the line up. And so this was a cause for uh, much consternation among some of the, the, the white officers as well as some of the enlist, enlisted men who, you know, were not knowledgeable of the DAP, so they couldn't participate in it. And so there were uh, strict kinds of, not laws, but, but uh, often Black soldiers suffered as a result. They were sent to the stockade or we, they were sent to KP because uh, they were doing the DAP. So, you know, things like that, that should have been innocuous, you know, just a, a sign. But then the powers that be didn't want to see these uh, signs of brotherhood among the African-Americans because quite often some of them would also speak out against some of the inequities that were occurring. And then there were some desertions, uh, you know, because of these uh, draconian kinds of measures that were often taken just for something as uh, simple as doing the death. Those sorts of cultural differences that point to larger structural differences, right? We exactly. Because uh, so that kind of cultural togetherness, you see, uh, recognition of Black personhood post a threat to uh, the, the officers and uh, even some of the other uh, soldiers who were, were, were not a part of that ritual. You know, it's, it's, it's a black male bonding ritual, if you will. And many of those in the mainstream felt outside that bond and uh, just outwardly rejected it. And in fact, the, 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 one of the novels that I uh, look at that in detail is Demojo Blues by, by A.R. Flowers. Uh, Demojo Blues uh, uses metaphorically the, the, the ritual of Vodun, which is called, in America, it's called voodoo. But again, there are um, all of these rituals, uh, you know, during enslavement, Africans who were practicing, you know, a spiritualistic religion called Vodun, many of them were just outrightly killed because the enslavers did not understand the ritual. And as it is with racism in any form, something that you don't understand, you want to destroy it. And so what this novel points out is that same kind of punishment was meted out uh, to black soldiers for participating in a ritual that is uh, many, um, quite a bit of research has shown that the DAP and the dozens actually originated from rituals on the African continent. So 
there was a reason that the novel begins uh, in, in, in present time and then reverts to past time and then goes to future time. Because, uh, as one writer calls it, it's the changing saying that, you know, what happened back during and, and, and before enslavement is continuing to happen now. And in the same way that Vietnam War novels are being written because the war never really ended. Hence, we have The Five Bloods that just came out what, about a month ago. You know, as you were talking, I was wondering if we started off with, with your college professor who had 15 you know, texts about the Vietnam War and only one by an African-American. I was wondering uh, if we could think a little bit more about, or I'd like to hear you say some more about the kinds of cultural traditions that maybe mark these novels, which may, which seem to me to have likely made them illegible as you know texts in the same category um, to white college professors or to um, white readers who are buying books and those kinds of things. You mentioned Anansi earlier, and and you were talking just now about. Um, sort of Voodoo traditions. Could you say a little more about how African and African-American cultural traditions shape these novels? Yes. Um, well, that's, uh, of course, one with that, uh, with Anansi, who was a, a mythical uh, being from Western Africa. You know, Anansi the spider, you see books about Anansi. Anansi is a shapeshifter, I suppose, for today's audience that that would uh, be something they could relate to you know with all the uh the superhero kinds of movies where there are people who are shapeshifters well anansi uh you know is a spider and however when he gets into trouble he spins his web uh when, when he gets into trouble as a human so he can shapeshift from a spider to a human and when he's a human he can uh immediately shapeshift into a spider and then he casts his web and and he spins out of harm's way okay um that's uh so metaphorically then anansi is a trickster uh and, and tricksterism is an apt symbol for what many uh african-american uh soldiers you know had to do uh, as they were fighting in the war. If, say, a commanding officer saw him, you know, doing, doing the dap, he could, you know, immediately revert to something like, oh, well, you know, he, he wanted the signal that I was about to do this or that. Uh, but even the whole notion of fighting in a war for a country that devalues you as a human, that tells, uh, you know, soldiers that uh, are those who would be soldiers that there are rewards, tangible rewards for them. Okay, you'll, you'll make this money. In fact, that's why a number of African-American young men uh, joined or uh, didn't, you know, fight it when they were um, drafted. Uh, they were going to, I can remember people in my class saying, okay, I'm going to war to send money back home to my parents. In fact, there was a, uh, when uh, President Johnson came in right after President Kennedy was assassinated. By the way, President Kennedy, right before he was assassinated, was getting ready to draw down. He was getting ready to bring 
thousands of men back from the war. But uh, after his assassination, that's when the war actually um, stepped up the whole process of, of sending uh, young men to the war. Many of them were, were uh, thinking that, uh, well, one of the reasons that the, the brass gave for, um, I think it was 100,000 soldiers uh, who were sent, uh, you know, right after uh, Kennedy was killed. And they said their aim was to take young men from the, you know, urban areas, many of whom, you know, didn't have a job or whatever. It was to send them to the service so that they could get some marketable skills that they would then bring back to America when they returned. But none of that eventuated. And later, uh, like when McNamara and some of the other folk who were sending young men to the war uh, admitted later that that was just uh, um, a ruse to get the, all those young men to, uh, to sign up. And as you know, African-American men were disproportionately killed in that war. Uh, many of them were put on the front lines. Many of them were the point man, you know, who's in front of the whole column or the forward observer, the FO. And so they were mo most vulnerable to uh, enemy fire. That's just what happened. That's why so many of them lost their lives uh, in that war. But, you know, all the subterfuge and that, that was done to entice these young men who just wanted to go and make some money to send back, many of them never returned. And so in the whole notion of tricksterism, of being able to take it, you know, take advantage of that and to use it for their own purposes, unfortunately, uh, you know, in, in many instances, it didn't work that way. So the, 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 the trickster, the, and I mentioned to you the spiritualistic practices of Muldoon, uh, that uh, the trickster sort of grew out of that as well. In Ghana, uh, little children are read trickster stories all the time. Now, before colonization by Europeans, the trickster was a person who, who lived in dire uh, circumstances, but was able to make the best out of those circumstances, I guess is the best way I put it. Because, you know, in many uh, West African countries, you have nine months of dry season, and uh, three months of the rainy season. Uh, so uh, it's a dire situation and you have to do what you can to survive. So one thing that the trickster, and this is what I'm coming to, the trickster has to do with survival. And on the continent prior to being uh, enslaved and spread across the diaspora, tricksterism ha had to do with uh, maybe um, it's smaller animals like, you know, the arachnid uh, is small and, you know, you could just step on him and be gone. But the thing about the trickster is he's always smart, just like the Br'er Rabbit stories. So the rabbit always outsmarted the bear and the larger animals. And so this, this whole notion of being able to survive by adapting oneself to to one's uh, uh, circumstances, serve those well who 
uh, were enslaved. And, uh, you know, it, it is said that when people were enslaved, they were told they had no history and, you know, that 400 years they were enslaved. And so they had nowhere to go back to and they had no history. Well, you know, that has now been totally proven wrong because civilization began on the continent of Africa. But what those people did who were in those dire circumstances, they uh, were able to uh, devise their own means of survival. For instance, there might have been people who were brought from four or five different uh, ethnic groups on the African continent. They were all thrown on slave ship together. But they devised hand signals to communicate with each other, to try to uh, foment mutiny on the ships. One of the most famous is of Sinke, C-I-N-Q-U-E, who um, later you know, brought his slave owners to court. So all of these, these ways in which uh, Africans devised ways to survive through very devastating kinds of situations or ways in which the trickster has gone you know, down through history and various stories that were handed down. Uh, and um, in fact, uh, capoeira, the uh, martial art uh, from uh, South America, it is said that when Africans were in the holds of the ship, that they devised those various moves that have now transcended time and come down to modern times because they were trying to survive those cramped environments in, in the hulls of the ship. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Shirley A. James Hanshaw discussing her book, Remembering and Surviving African-American Fiction of the Vietnam War. You know, as you were talking about Anansi and about the, the different sort of means and techniques that Africans used um, as they were being brought across in ships and things, I was thinking about in the book, you talk about the one of the distinguishing features of many of the, the heroes in these books, it seems to be that they contain multitudes, right? That they're not just embodiments of restorative violence or white Eurocentric uh, heroism, but in fact, they can be good and bad at the same time. They can be funny. Um, they can express uh, sorrow and, and suffering, but still be, you know, noble examples. Well, one of those heroes is High John de Conquer. Hai John the Conqueror, he's also known by Hai John the Conqueror. Uh, and you've probably heard of uh, the Jack and John tales in African-American uh, cultural memory. And that's sort of where that came from. It is said that there was a Hai John the Conqueror route. And uh, especially those who fomented slave rebe rebellions like uh, Denmark Vesey and uh, Nat Turner. It is said that they carried that high John the Conqueror root with them, and that that root made a person invincible. So high John the Conqueror, it is said that he showed up everywhere black folk needed help, and that when the enslaved were on the ship, that high John the Conqueror was with them. Now he was, you know, this powerful person. And they said that Hai John was so bad that he went down to hell and married the, uh, the devil's daughter. But on his way back up to earth, he handed out ice water to all the people who were surrounded. So he was mean, 
but he was compassionate. <laughs> he was concerned. He was concerned about other people. And so that's what I'm saying about many of the, the heroes in many of these novels by African-Americans. Uh, they you know, perform their jobs as soldiers uh, for America, but they were compassionate toward the Vietnamese. The, the protagonists in these novels invariably uh, are on an identity quest. Uh, the heroic quest, you know, in, in most cultures is an identity quest. But what makes this identity quest different is that these young men find themselves in the middle of war, right? And then after they've developed a positive identity, as, as young, strong black men, then they become committed to improving the quality of life for other blacks, as well as for other racial groups who are similarly oppressed. And that's where the compassionate heroism comes in. I wonder if we could, I want to ask you about um, some of the specific works and, and give folks a little bit of a picture of the writers that you're dealing with in the book. But I, before we move on from the kind of general theoretical discussion, I was hoping to ask you about the concept of remembering with a hyphen. You include an epigraph in the introduction from Melvin Dixon, uh, where Dixon writes, by calling themselves to remember Africa and or the racial past. Black Americans are actually remembering, as in repopulating broad continuities within the African diaspora. You use the hyphen in your title, uh, Remembering and Surviving. Could you say a little bit more about this concept of remembering and how it informs your thinking about these works? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, and, when, and when anyone asks me the title of my book, I always say re-memory rather than remembering. Re-hyphen membering is significant because it has to do uh, with more than just memory. Uh, in many African cultures, remembering is of the highest importance. And in fact, it is uh, said by some uh, that if you forget, it's the same as to throw away. Uh, therefore, if you fail to appreciate the strength and wisdom of the African forebears, if you fail to appreciate that, then you are ill-equipped to survive. Remember, we're talking about survival with the trickster and that. The Black Holocaust uh, lasted 400 years, and some call it the Mayafa, the M-A-A-F-A, -A, a disaster beyond comprehension that ruptured the spirits of African peoples physically, mentally, emotionally, and socially. Therefore, Africans in America are, con are continually in a process of re-memorizing. That is, recuperating from the trauma and the fragmentation that were caused by not only, you know, being dragged from the African continent, being thrown on slave ships, um, and many Africans, you know, jump to their deaths in, in the ocean rather than come to this uncertain future and, uh, and the mistreatment that they even received on the, on the uh, slave ships. And then the fragmentation of being enslaved all those years, then 
What followed that was even after emancipation, there was fragmentation of, of lynching, and then there was Jim Crow, and uh, it continues because of, of um, structural racism. Well, and, and we should say today, I mean, it continues in the form of state-sanctioned police violence. Exactly. That actually, I don't know if you know that uh, policing actually uh, was never um, uh, for the, uh, what does it say, protect, to protect and to... Um, yeah, protect and serve. Yeah. So it was never for the protection uh, nor to, uh, of nor to serve African-Americans policing in America grew out of the slave patrols. Yeah. When, when those who were enslaved escaped, just regular everyday white people were, um, you know, called to action to go and bring them back, you know, by whatever means necessary, either dead or alive. And that's actually how policing started. So even the brutality that we're seeing now in the streets it all relates to uh, the era of enslavement. Uh, but to continue my point, uh, so Africans in America are continually in a process of re-hyphen memory from the trauma and the fragmentation of self-identity. And the way that they're doing it is by recouping the pre-slavery African heritage to survive. So for so long, Africans in America were told they had no history. So by purposefully then recouping this uh, African uh, history, um, then Africans are helping themselves to recuperate from the fragmentation. So it's not just uh, remembering all of these things that happened back then, but it's a continual process of re-memorizing the fragmentation that is caused by everyday. Uh, acts of racism. Is there something? Is there something about embodiment to the concept as well? That something about um, like f- folks coming to bodily integrity, or or to to you know populating the past as as not full of anonymous, forgotten folks, but actually as continuing to have a power over the present. Yes, because and that's why these these heroes that from African and African-American cultural memory are important in these novels because it's it's sort of like they're transcending time to revive those personages and heroes from the past. That's one reason Black Panther was so important. In fact, there are many African rituals that were, uh, such as the uh, hero lying down and being uh, metaphorically uh, buried, where he would then communicate with the ancestors. The Black Panther communicated with his father. The, 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 there's a book titled The Hero with an African Face and by Clyde Ford. And in uh, that work of literature, he, he talks about the, uh, the hero with an African face who has to, as a part of his uh, journey, uh, he has to communicate with the ancestors to get advice about how to go forward uh, in his own life. And then he has to decide whether or not what his father did was the same thing that he needs to do 
to be successful on his heroic journey. So in a metaphorical way, many of these novels recapitulate the heroic journey of the hero with an African face. I'd like to spend a little bit of time thinking about the novels in particular. And I, I mentioned at the outset that you deal with four case studies in particular. I'd like to I'd like to say them again, just because one thing that I discovered in preparing for this podcast, as you note in the introduction to your book, is that, that so little has been written about these authors that you deal with. So you have Captain Blackman, a novel from 1972 by John A. Williams, uh, Demojo Blues from 1985 by A.R. Flowers, uh, Tragic Magic in 1978 by Wesley Brown, and Coming Home, 1971 by George Davis. Why these four particularly out of the 35 that you could have chosen? And um, are they united in some way by particular themes or are they providing contrasts for each other? Not necessarily particular themes, but I'll just say um, John A. Williams is the oldest of the four. In fact, he spans about probably seven decades before his death. A very prolific writer. Uh, he wrote one of his novels, The Man Who Cried I Am, and he was a very prolific writer. He, he wrote, turned out one novel after the other, sometimes a year or two years apart. But he was very underrated. And uh, he actually wanted to go to Vietnam so that um, he could interview the soldiers. And, and he wanted to write a nonfictional work. But he was denied a passport because he said he wanted to go out in the, in, in the fields and in the stockades because that's where the real stories were. Well, of course, the American government didn't want him interviewing black soldiers in the stockades. And that, so he was denied a passport. And what he did, he came back to America and wrote this novel. Uh, it's titled Captain Black Man, and it's a foray into the past, the present, and the future. Uh, and this is what intrigued me about it. So Captain Blackman is a soldier in present day in Vietnam War. He's injured in battle. And as he's lying in a semi-conscious reverie, he becomes a soldier in every war, war that black soldiers have fought, uh, going all the way back uh, to colonial times. In each of those wars, African-Americans uh, endure racist treatment. and uh, what he does is he sets up this kind of dual segment uh, throughout the novels called uh, drum taps and cadences. And in the uh, cadences section, he tells about these various uh, commands that white officers have given blacks and uh, sometimes uh, blacks uh, end up getting mistreated uh, while they're carrying out whatever the orders are. And then the drum taps section then talks about the atrocities in detail. Like there was an incident called the Tombolo incident during the Second World War, and uh, black soldiers were uh, sent out into the forest to supposedly uh, kill the enemy. But actually, it shows that the, the, the commanding officer sent them out there just so that they could be um, uh, annihilated. And uh, after they were killed, their bodies lay out there for days. 
and no one uh, came to retrieve their bodies. And uh, in the cadences section, one of the commanding officers said, yeah, we didn't want them over there uh, going with those European women. So that's why they were killed. So John Williams then writes this novel to, in effect, correct the historical record about how Blacks have been treated throughout history, fighting for America, but uh, uh, America has given, has meted out to them the same racist treatment throughout these wars. And so, in effect, it, it deals with the uh, re-enlist, the person who re-enlists. Because Captain Blackman, after he is, you know, his body heals from his wounds, he goes back to America and he takes some courses in African-American history. And then he re-enlists purposefully to go back to uh, battle, uh, but to teach the other uh, Black soldiers what has happened to Black soldiers throughout history. So in that novel, then Captain Black Man becomes the metaphorical Anansi, <laughs> even though his commanding officer tells him that he can't teach a Black history course, he surreptitiously does it as a trickster. So the re-enlisted Black soldier is presented fictionally in that novel. In the Mojo Blues, the dishonorably discharged soldier is treated the three black soldiers, again, this begins uh, in present time when they are getting off the, the plane in San Francisco. They have been dishonorably discharged for having committed what's called a fragging. That is, someone throws a fragmentation grenade into the tent of an officer and uh, kills him. So even though they were nowhere near the scene, the officer who was killed is uh, Colonel Kicks, who is known to hate black soldiers. So it is just felt then that they are the ones responsible. And that's why they are sent back dishonorably discharged. And when they come back to America, they have to now find a way to empower themselves. Because if you apply for a job and you have, you indicate that you are dishonorably discharged, you know what happens. So the, uh, the protagonist of the book decides that he is going to uh, study the ancient spiritualistic uh, to, uh because it is, a, it is a spiritualistic practice of self-empowerment. One of his brothers uh, becomes, uh, he, he fights in the uh, gentrification wars in the city and the third one becomes a judge. So each of them chooses his path uh, to uh, one to empower the black community, another one to uh, empower himself, and another becomes a judge to try to help blacks to get through the uh, justice system. So that's the, the uh, re-enlisted soldier, the dishonorably discharged soldier. Then tragic magic, by Wesley Brown has to do with the conscientious objector. Now, someone said, oh, well, that's not a, a war novel. Well, yes, it is. Because when a Melvin, who is the protagonist of the novel, conscientiously decides that he's not going to go and fight in the war, he's sent to prison. Well, metaphorically, the prison, the prison becomes 
uh, metaphorical war zone. And I, I, you know, I described that, um, you know, the similarities between uh, going to war and being in, in prison. Also, Melvin's alter ego and best friend has just come back from the war. Uh, he, he was a Marine and he comes back uh, with one arm. And now he abides by all of the mainstream notions of heroism. You know, he's the big John Wayne kind of uh, Marine fighter. And uh, so when he comes back, people feel, oh, wow, he's this big hero. But as it turns out, he was no hero at all. He heard that if you throw your arms up during enemy fire and get your hand shot off, you can get sent back home. <laughs> so what the novel points out is that the whole notion of the, you know, the big bad John Wayne soldier, that soldier is not really a hero. That the real hero was the one who stood up and uh, declared conscientious objection and did his stint in prison to stand up to the, to the system. And uh, when he comes back, then, you know, we, one find, the society finds out that he was the real hero. Um, his friend, by the way, uh, self-destructs when he comes back with PTSD. So it's also a study in, in PTSD. I mean, you really does an incredible job, the, the novels that you've selected, highlighting the degree to which this, the war was experienced so differently, you know, by different individuals, by different writers. And that, as you say, I think it's so important to remember that experience of the war wasn't just, you know, flew in and, and carried a machine gun through the jungle, but actually, you know, was people who conscientiously objected, was people who were drafted, was people who fled uh, from being drafted, who enlisted voluntarily. There's a, a huge diversity in responses to the war, uh, and you, you do a great job showing that with the different works. And the, the fourth one, uh, quickly, was... Uh coming home now many people are familiar with the, the film coming home that uh, jane fonda starred in uh but people were not aware of coming home that some of that film was adapted from this novel by a black writer okay uh george davis uh this is the uh only novel that i found about uh, an air an air force pilot who becomes disenchanted with, um, you know, they used to fly these uh, raids called uh, carpet bombing raids. And by the time they stopped dropping all these hundreds, if not thousands of bombs, it was said by uh, one of the uh, senators that it looked like the pockmarked surface of the moon. So the aim was not only to kill Viet Cong, but also to denude the landscape and so that for years, that ground would not even be arable. So this uh, African-American uh, officer has matriculated at Harvard. He has matriculated at uh, Officers Candidate School. And he's, as they would say, at the top of his game. But uh, he has a fit of conscience because despite having, you know, all of these accomplishments, uh, he's still receiving racist treatment. And so after he sees the extent of the damage that he's caused, because he, he says at one point, those of us 
who dropped the bombs never see the results of our bombing. And so it's only after he has some camaraderie with some enlisted men who are down in the muck and mire of the war, he begins to see the damage, uh, the extensive damage that he's done that will haunt the Vietnamese for years to come. And so because of his compassion toward the Vietnamese, he goes against all of his commanding officers, he parks his plane, and then he deserts to Sweden. So this is the story of the deserter. It's interesting that that fits into the theme of like remembering or recovery in some way. You know, we flew past it. It, it was all blown up. We didn't really see what happened. And then I kind of was forced to confront what had, you know, what happened and what my actions caused. And that led to the outcome of desertion. One of the things that characterizes your book is that you have this list of 35 works that you could have dealt with. You have the appendices where you're dealing with finding all of the kinds of works that, that might fit in here. Um, but you talk about the degree to which structural racism prevented a lot of black people from writing and publishing about their experiences in Vietnam. Did the authors that you're dealing with face any particular challenges or restrictions that prevented them from publishing? And how did the publishing industry more broadly prevent folks from getting their reflections out there? Okay, so when I started on this project, and, you know, I, I, I told you, I, I asked myself, you know, aren't there other works of literature besides uh, Denkidao by Komenyaka that African-Americans have produced about the Vietnam War? And so uh, one of my uh, literary mentors, I called and asked him, uh, I mean, he has, uh, he, he's just a uh, scholar's scholar. So I figured if a book existed, he knew. And it was not until that point that I learned that he was also a Vietnam War veteran. See, this is one of the things about many Vietnam War veterans. They uh, don't want to talk about the experience. And uh, so he, he named a, a few books, maybe about 10 for me, that uh, I started looking for. And then he said, uh, I don't read books about the Vietnam War. I don't watch films about it. I don't talk about it. He said, but I'll give you this one example and I won't, don't want to discuss it anymore. And a chill just came over me. He said that he was in line for chow and a little Montagnard child came up and asked uh, for some food. The Montagnards were from the, uh, the Highlands and they were a, are a dark-skinned uh, group of South Vietnamese. And so they were discriminated against by the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese and everybody. So anyway, he said, um, I put my clip in my rifle and I pointed it at the person who was uh, uh, serving the food. I said, either that child eats or nobody eats. <laughs> uh, that's why it sent a chill through me. But um, Go, going on to your question, that that just uh, occurred to me as I was going to uh, give you this information. So there were a number of pe number of novels that were written during the 70s and 80s, particularly and on into the 90s, uh, and a number of these novels got good reviews in Kirkus Reviews and uh, Library Journal and New York Times Review of Books, but uh, these books did not get uh, much scholarly attention, which is why my, I decided to write a scholarly book. 
Now, some of the writers of these uh, novels, what happened to some of them is that uh, some of the editors at major publishing houses who had sought and supported black novelists during the 60s and 70s, you know, when blackness was in vogue, some of these later left their publishing, the publishing business. Uh, black writer Barry Beckham wrote a novel titled Run Runner Mac in 1972, and it was selected uh, as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times. However, the editor to whom Beckham was assigned left the publishing company. Then, despite his uh, subsequently having signed two contracts for nonfiction books, both publishers subsequently turned down his manuscripts. Uh, then George Davis, who wrote Coming Home that I just talked about, suffered a similar fate. Though his novel Coming Home in 1971 did not initially receive critical acclaim, it was later touted as not only one of the finest, but also most underrated novels to be written about the Vietnam War experience. But what happened to Davis is that his editor also left the publishing company that he was with prior to publication. And afterward, the company was not interested in publishing other fiction by him. So what Davis did was found another publisher and he later published several works of nonfiction. So that's why in the, at the end of the, uh, in the introduction, I, I discussed the uh, publishing history of each of these writers that I chose because I want people to know the kind of experiences they had, you know, to just get this one <laughs> novel to, to the press. A second reason for non-publication of Black War novels had to do with the unwillingness of many publishers to accept manuscripts from Black writers, several of whom presented an anti-war stance, or at least questioned America's involvement in the war. Another reason was denial of, of visas to Black authors. I just I previously mentioned uh, uh, denial of visa to uh, Johnny Williams who's the oldest of the writers whose novels I critique. They also denied visas to journalists uh, and, to news, and to Black news correspondents uh, desiring to enter Vietnam. John A. Williams, by the way, was an honorably discharged Navy veteran of World War II. And, and the Pentagon not only did, denied him permission to enter Vietnam, but also Cambodia. That's where, you know, some of the... Uh, the flights out of Cambodia and Thailand where some of the uh, flyers uh, flew bombing raids. But one notable exception to black journalists being denied entry into Vietnam was Philippa Schuyler. This is, and I think my next book will be on Philippa. She met an untimely death under mysterious circumstances in 1967. The way that she got to Vietnam was that uh, Philippa was a, uh, well, she was a prodigy. She was a child prodigy. Uh, from the time she was uh, five years old, she was performing classical pieces on the piano. Her parents were uh, from the Harlem Renaissance literati. Her father was an African-American writer, uh, George Schuyler, and her mother was a, a white socialite. Philippa was their only child. But even before they gave her dancing lessons and all that, she, she started playing the piano. And by the age 10, she was writing classical compositions. So she performed all over the world uh, as a young woman. And one of those places 
was Vietnam. And while she was there, she uh, saw the plight, especially of uh, Amerasian orphans. She, she saw the plight of uh, these children who had been orphaned during the war. And uh, so she uh, voluntarily started taking some of the children by helicopter, uh, hoping to bring them back to America for people to adopt them. But one of those trips, the helicopter on which she was riding mysteriously went down. There was no inclement weather or anything to have caused it to fall into the sea. While she was in Vietnam, however, she was able to pass as a Vietnamese woman. She was very light-skinned, and uh, she noticed while she was over there that the CIA was following her. And uh, then she later found out that her hotel room was bugged. So that's when she decided, oh, well, she's going to don the, the dress of Vietnamese women, the, the head and the, um, the audai, the, the, the dress with the slit up the side. And she went out into many of the villages and she found out that the stories that we were getting back in America were not true that many of the reports had been falsified about the number of Viet Cong who were killed, you know, in comparison to the, the number of Americans who had lost their lives and that. But she found that many of the stories that were being reported were not true. So, uh, you know, and this was early in the war in 1967 when her helicopter went down. Out of all the people who were on it, only she and a little Vietnamese child died. But, I mean, she was so well-known across the world that the Pope came to her funeral and several other, um, you know, heads of state came to her funeral. So she was the only one that, uh, only Black person who was able to get into Vietnam early on. But, again, it was surreptitiously she was able to do it. Because of her, uh, because of her talent as a uh, classical pianist, and she's going to be the subject of your next book. You think? <laughs> That's what I think, <laughs> because she was an amazing human being. Oh, by the way, and she wrote four books. The one titled "Good Men Die" is the one that has a lot of the information that I just uh, related to you, but it was published posthumously. Well, we'll look forward to that. I think um, we're kind of running close to just about out of time. I do want to ask one more question because I think that, um, as I've emphasized throughout our conversation, the, the book is really opening a field of, of um, literary scholarship. You're really drawing attention to stuff that just that's woefully neglected and making a lot of headway in that regard. I wonder, as you say in the epilogue, there's a great deal of work yet to be done, and you've mentioned Spike Lee's *De Five Blood*. So new depictions of the African American experience of the Vietnam War continue to uh, appear, and that our understanding of that period is, is evolving. How do you see scholarship in this field developing, and what would you like to see change uh, in literary studies? Okay, so a number of scholars who uh, deal with Vietnam War literature, mainstream or, or whatever be the case, they use postmodernism. Uh, literary theory to analyze the novels. Uh, my argument in this book is that postmodernism does not lend itself to a uh, revealing critique of 
novels uh, and uh, other non-fictional work by African-Americans. Uh, rather, vernacular theory unlocks African myths, uh, metaphorical figures who are dealt with, with in, in many of these novels to uh, explore uh, the wide range of uh, treatments of uh, Africans and African-Americans in this literature. I, I just didn't have the time to devote uh, as much attention to a deep reading of novels as I did to these four <laughs> and to still be living <laughs> uh, as to the other 31 novels that are out there. Uh, they uh, deal with some incredible topics. One of them, for instance, uh, by Pruitt, is that um, it has to do with a, an African-American soldier who returns to America, and he's just walking around in New Jersey, and, and he sees this young lady, and he thinks that he has seen her before. Well, it turns out that he knew her in Vietnam. And then, uh, you know, the whole uh, adventure follows that. Uh, there are some novels by African-American females. Now, of course, Philippa Schuyler's book is nonfiction, Good Men Die. Uh, she's telling about things that are af actually happening in Vietnam and, you know, how many of the stories that we were being fed by the mainstream uh, uh, journalists and, uh, you know, TV, that they, they were not really true. But they are at least... Uh, three uh, African-American females, uh, um, writers of Vietnam War novels. And I, I just found so intriguing the subjects of many of these. One of these that comes to mind is titled Manny, and it's about uh, a young protagonist named Emmanuel. He grew up in, you know, the uh, inner city uh, in New York, and uh, he uh, sees this gentleman on the street who's sort of ragged and that so people say he's just a vagrant you know you don't want to bother with him well it turns out that the man is actually an african griot and because manny takes up time with him he tells him all of these stories uh, uh, about africa and he also teaches manny uh, uh you know the african martial art of uh capoeira and turns out when Manny uh, goes to uh, war, he uses this martial art to be able to survive while he's in Vietnam. I mean, there, there are just so many different treatments of subject matter uh, in these various novels that there's just, uh, it's limitless what can be uh, done when these are brought to four. The other thing is that, you know, many of the films that were made about Vietnam, like uh, Full Metal Jacket or Born on the Fourth of July, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now, you know, those were adapted from works by white writers. But, you know, here you have all of these novels by African Americans, many of which would lend themselves to uh, being made into movies. And uh, one that I talk about in detail is uh, Tragic Magic, because the best way I can describe uh, 
the language of that novel is that when you read it, it sounds like you're listening to a jazz composition. <laughs> and so I coined a term called the jazzerly text that I explain in my book, how that writer brings to the fore a jazz paradigm. But I just think that there's so much more that can be done with this corpus of literature and that Americans will never know the whole story about America's involvement in Vietnam until they know the African-American story. Yeah. And your book does such a great job of opening the door to starting to, to really take that seriously and, and give it the, the attention that it deserves. Thank you so much, Shirley. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much from, from your book and from listening to you talk today. So many great stories and so much perspective on, you know, something that, that is often presented as a known quantity, but as you've just displayed is full of so much more that we need to explore and attend to. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed this discussion and I learned so much from it. Well, thank you again for having invited me to uh, speak to you uh, and, uh, this on this podcast. And uh, I hope that the, uh, the book uh, ultimately will bring back into print um, many of these works by African-American writers, most of which have gone out of print. So that's my ultimate goal. Shirley A. James Hanshaw's book, Remembering and Surviving, African-American Fiction of the Vietnam War, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mindy Hagos, Kylie Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.